Discovering identity in the year 2015 is a huge challenge, and it has been for the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. People have really struggled figuring out where their place is, and deeper than that, figuring out who they are. More often than not, people that are struggling to determine their identity will look in one of three places, or sometimes multiples of these three places. Most people begin by looking inward. They take some tests that help them understand personality traits and characteristics, and they come up with some unique terms for that. Oftentimes, when you're looking inside yourself to determine identity, not only do you find personality traits and characteristics, but you also discover things like addictions and conflicts. For a lot of people, when they're looking inside themselves, they will arrive at a place where they say, I was created like this. That's the end of it. There's nothing I can do about it. There's no way that I can be changed. There's no way that I could be any different. This is the way God wired me. But a few people that want to find truth deeper than that will look not just inside themselves, but they'll begin to look outward as well. Outward meaning they start asking other people for their opinions about themselves. They'll throw out a a broad net and just see what they can catch from other people. And obviously there's huge problems with that. Because unless you're talking to people that are very close to you, the vast acquaintances that you have really do not have enough knowledge about you to give an informed decision on who you are or to even give an informed opinion about who you are. Sadly enough, when we are looking outward and we are accepting other people's opinions about us, those opinions, many times, are measured through a person's opinion of themselves or the circumstances of life that surround them. So there's very little truth that comes from outward... I don't even know what the word is. Outward agreements with who you are. It can cause people a lot of problems. So if we're looking inward and we arrive at this place where we say, well, that's just who I am and the way I was created to be, and we're having other people validate that from outside of ourselves, but we really want to start looking a little bit deeper to determine who we are, a number of people will do this. They'll start looking towards their own achievements or accomplishments, and they'll use that as a sense of self-worth and as an identifying mechanism that helps them understand who they are. For a lot of men, that will come out in the form of occupation. It might sound like this. Hi, my name is Phil. I am the senior pastor of Libby Christian Church. That becomes my identity, but really, that's just a small portion of who I am. For a lot of ladies, though there are some where occupation will determine who they are, family issues tend to become the identifying aspect in the realm of accomplishments and achievements. So that might sound like this if Tina were introducing herself to somebody. She'd say, hi, my name is Tina. I am Nick, Eli, and Katie's mother. And that becomes this identifying sense of self. However, just like for men, that's only a small portion of who she is. There's a lot more that that makes up this person of Tina. We can carry it out of the occupation in the familiar and put it in all kinds of other realms, like even our hobbies, where we allow that to become the identifying sense of self. So I might say something like this. Hi, my name is Phil, and I am a spectacular elk hunter, better than even... Oh gosh, let me think here for just a second. Better even than Jim Ray. I am a much better elk hunter than Jim Ray is. He wants to be like me. 
And I can convince everybody around me that that's the case. Now, here's the problem. When we identify ourselves through a sense of accomplishment or achievement, we can actually lie to ourselves and everybody else around us. And that's what just happened, because Jim has actually killed an elk, and I haven't. So if you believe that, I'm lying to everybody if you believe that I am a better elk hunter than Jim Ray is. Yet people do that all the time, because that's the trap that is set. Those types of things exist in every one of those realms. From time to time, people will use all three of those to identify who they really are, and they will run headlong into each and every one of those traps. There is a better way to determine identity. Interestingly enough, Jesus discovered it, and the Bible shows it to us. I love the fact that in Jesus' life, we are able to see everything that we need to see for our lives. And a lot of people don't understand that. What you have to know about him is that for 33 years, Jesus lived on this earth both as God and man. And as he was living here, his divinity was overshadowing his humanity, but his humanity brought with it the exact same struggles that we have, from identifying himself all the way through to sin. Now, if you've read the Bible at all, you know this, in the realm of sin, he was always victorious. Jesus died a sinless man. Every other struggle we face, he faced, including this one with identity. And when he was struggling with it, God responded. I want to show you what that looked like. We're going to go to the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Each of those Gospels tells the same story. And I want you to see it for yourself. This is how Jesus discovered his identity. Now, I'm going to read it out of all three Gospels so that you can see it as the exclamation point that it is in the Bible. It isn't recorded just one time. And a lot of times you'll find a story in one of the Gospels and the other three don't tell the same story, and sometimes they do, and and there can be a lot of questions about why it is the way it is, why did Matthew tell it and Luke tell it, but Mark and John didn't, and so on, and there's reasons for a lot of that. In this particular situation, the fact that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, referred to as the synoptic Gospels, those three tend to run very close with one another, those three Gospels all tell the same story. So I want you to see this. We'll start in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, listen to this, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now let's go to the Gospel of Mark. First chapter, verse 10. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, again, listen, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And now we'll go to Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son 
whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now you might ask why the Gospels contain this three different times. That's because it's significant. You might ask why it is that three different times in the Bible we hear the exact same statement, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. It's because it's real to us as well. You see, Jesus wrestled with identity the same way we did. And he needed certain things from God in order to help him discover what his true identity was. The same thing that we need. So rather than looking inward and rather than looking outward and rather than looking at achievements to determine who he was, Jesus looked upward. Now, you could easily say, and so could I, that if he were to look inward, he would know exactly who he was. He was both God and man. That was never an issue for Jesus. If he were to look inside himself, there would have never been any question about identity, and there wouldn't have been. Had he looked outward, more often than not, Jesus would have found people that were scoffing at who he was. They would have been tearing him down rather than affirming that he was the Savior. But in the realm of achievements, there is absolutely no one else in all of history that could hang their hat on their achievements better than the worker of miracles and the creator of the universe. His achievements alone would have driven home the point that he was Jesus the Christ, that he was the Son of God, and that he was, in fact, God himself. But Jesus needed more than that, the same way we do. So he looked upward and he found this affirmation from God. You are my son with whom I am well pleased. What a beautiful passage of scripture. You are my son with whom I am well pleased. I like the way Thomas Smale says this. He says Jesus needed not just once, but again and again at every step of his mission and every crisis of living and dying to receive constant affirmation of his identity. And this is a perfect example of that. As his ministry was ready to begin, as it was just getting started, he needed to have his identity solidified by God, and God did it. He looked upward and heard those words, You are my son, with whom I am well pleased. Now there are obviously questions that come out of that. If he was God's son, how could he have been Joseph's son? Thankfully, the Bible answers that for us as well. So if that's been one of those things that you've wrestled with, let me show you how it works. The gospel of Luke probably gives us better insight than any other passage we just read so that you can understand how Jesus can be called the son of God. And it will help you understand how you can be called a son of God or a daughter of God. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We'll pick up right where we left off. Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Now, what we're about to read is a section of Scripture that most people skip right over. You'll see a a long list of names like this in the Bible and think to yourself, oh, gosh, that's just a genealogy. I don't need to spend any time there. Yes, you do. You've heard me say before, when you're reading your Bible, don't just skip over genealogies. There's a lot of biblical teaching to be found there, just like this passage. Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathad, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Matthias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan the son of Resha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, 
the son of Neri, the son of Melchi. Now let's stop here for just a second. Because I know that this question resonates with a lot of people. When you come across the genealogy in the Bible and the names are in there and there are these long, strange-sounding names, how in the world are you supposed to read it if you can't pronounce it? I'm going to give you a great Bible study technique right here. Fake it. (laughs) Nobody knows the difference. And so if you pronounce it one way and somebody else pronounces it the other way, who in the world is going to tell you who's right? So you just fake it. Make your way through. So here we go. The son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Mena, the son of Matha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Abminadab the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. Now, here's what I want you to hear. The son of God. That's how this genealogy works. When God says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, or you are my son with whom I am well pleased, but we also know he was the son of Joseph. Jesus is in a little different category than us, but it's the exact same application. I am Phil, the son of Dalton. I have two sons, Nick and Eli. They would be referred to biblically as Nick, the son of Phil, Eli, the son of Phil. But if they were to trace their lineage all the way back, if they were to go all the way through their genealogy, just like you, this is where it would end, the son of God. So when you step out of the waters of baptism, you have the opportunity to hear the exact same words that Jesus did. This is my son. This is my daughter with whom I am well pleased. You are my son. You are my daughter, with whom I am well pleased. And it's as true for Jesus as it is for you. And it's as true for you as it was for him. That's beautiful biblical logic. That is wonderful teaching. And that is deep Bible study right there. That's how it works. Trace it all the way back. You are a child of God. Jesus needed to hear that. It was part of his identity That was part of what had to be affirmed within him. It is not lost on me that that was the first of three audible affirmations from heaven in Jesus' life. That was the first of three times that God would open up his mouth in heaven and speak to his son on earth. Each one of them affirming a portion of his identity that he might boldly do what he had to do and no one else could. The next one came at the point of the transfiguration. Let me show that to you. Go with me to the Gospel of Luke. Actually, we're still in it. The ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. 
As they were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. Now let's go to the third account. This one's found in the Gospel of John. John chapter 12, starting in verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Now follow these three accounts. The first time that God spoke from heaven was at the baptism of Jesus, when he said, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. And he started affirming his identity right there. The second time God would open up heaven and speak to Jesus came at the point of the transfiguration, at a very pivotal time in his public ministry. It was necessary for Peter, James, and John to hear that validation. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Now listen to him. And you can imagine that they went back and told people. Even though the Bible says they kept it to themselves for a little while, I'm sure that was just a very little while. They were going to want to tell everybody what they had just seen up on the mountain. They were going to want everybody to know it. And the best part about it was they were going to say, and God spoke. God said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And we're to listen to him. We're to pay attention. It was validation of his purpose the third time that God opened up heaven and spoke in Jesus' life, came when he needed him the most. Do you hear that in John chapter 12? His soul was troubled. His heart was troubled. His divinity and humanity were wrestling with one another in huge ways. He was talking about his impending death, and he said, I don't want to do this, but I need to. So Lord, be glorified. And God said, I already have been, and I will be again. What great words for a son to hear from his father. I already have been by your life, and I will be again. Those are the three times that God opened heaven and spoke into Jesus' need for identity. And he still does the same thing for us. He speaks to us when we have ourselves positioned to be validated in our identity by him, which, by the way, happens in the baptistry. And the second time that he speaks to us is when we come to him needing to have validation in the realm of our purpose, our mission, our whole reason for existence. And then the third time that he speaks to us is in our time of great need. He really does. The Lord speaks to us in all three of those situations. But in my experience, here's what I've learned. Most people want to hear the voice of God in the realm of number two and number three without ever participating in the realm of number one. 
Now, I'm not a great mathematician. I'm really not. But I can figure this out. Two and three always follow one. Always. When Jesus walked into the waters of baptism, he was being obedient to the things that the Bible had taught. He was being obedient to the things of God. He was being obedient that we might follow the same pattern. And that was where he found his validation in identity. This is my son. With him I am well pleased. And then when he needed God in those other situations, God was there in two and three, ready to respond. I am absolutely convinced it still works the same way. You cannot be disobedient to God and then expect that God is going to validate your purpose in life. You cannot be disobedient to God and then expect that when you need Him the most, He's going to be there. Even though people try to do that all the time, it just doesn't work. That's where a lot of God frustration comes from. You'll hear people say on a regular basis, I needed God, where was He? I needed Him in this situation in my life, where was He? Well, the better question is, have you been obedient to Him? Have you done the things you needed to? And has your identity been validated within Christ? If it hasn't, that's a simple fix. It really is. Because did you see when the validation happened? Did you hear it? It happened at the point of baptism. When Jesus said, Lord, I want to affirm my relationship with you, the same thing that we do in baptism, we affirm our relationship with him, and God says, my side is already taken care of. Now we have a complete picture. And that's when God says, this is my child with whom I am well pleased. And it should be that way because do you really understand what baptism is? Let me show you what the Bible says about it. We're going to go to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the saints in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. There are two parts of baptism you have to see from this. The first part is God's. Jesus died on the cross for you. His blood was shed for you and it covered all of your sins. That's already been taken care of. Now in baptism, the second part hinges on us. That is the pledge of a good conscience towards God. That's that point where we say, Lord, this is the way I used to live. I don't want to live that way anymore. I want to live for you. Lord, this is the way I used to be identified. I don't want to be identified that way anymore. I now want to be identified in you. And when that pledge of a good conscience is made and God hears it and God sees it, then he responds with these words, You are my son. You are my daughter. With you I am well pleased. Because of that pledge of a good conscience. It doesn't have anything to do with your past. It has to do with what's happening right there, right in that moment. God, everything is changing right here, right now. And God says, oh, yeah, it is. Oh, yeah, it is. And you are my child. And with you, I'm well pleased. So let me ask you this question. For those of you that have been immersed in baptism, what voice have you heard since? What voice have you heard? Have you heard God validating your identity, saying, you are my son? 
You are my daughter, and I am well pleased with you. Or have you heard quiet whispers in your soul telling you that there is no way that God could have loved you enough to have died for you? Have you heard loud shouts in your head and in your heart as you've listened to other voices say that you will never, ever be good enough? Or have you heard the deceptive words of hell resonating over and over and over again as they tell you that you're no different? There is nothing changed about you? If you have, you have to go back and measure your baptism against 1 Peter chapter 3. If there was a pledge of a good conscience towards God on your behalf, and there was you accepting the gift of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, then the voice you should have heard is this one. You are my son. You are my daughter. And I am well pleased with you. I am well pleased with you. Now, if you've never been baptized and you've never experienced those words and there's a longing deep within your soul to experience that, let me tell you where it begins. Just look at the Bible. It begins in the waters of baptism. Let it start right there. Don't let anybody convince you that it shouldn't start there. Which, by the way, baptism, biblical baptism is by immersion. Romans chapter 6 tells us why. It's an identification with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We go into the water a sinner. We leave our sins in that water as if we have buried them. We come out of the water a new creation in Christ. It's by immersion. And that's the reason they did it that way biblically, and that's the reason we do it that way today. But if you have questions about baptism, maybe you've never been baptized and you would like to be, then know this. Two weeks from today, on October 4th at 6 o'clock, Deanie and I are going to be teaching a class on baptism. We do this about once a year. We will do everything we can to answer every question you have about it. And then the baptistry will be on. And if you want to be baptized, you can be baptized that night. Here's what I love about Libby Christian Church, though. That's not the only time you can be baptized. You can be baptized today. Baptistry's on. We can take care of that. You can be baptized tomorrow. Baptistry may not be on. be a little cold, but we'll get in the water with you. You can be baptized on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. doesn't matter. We'll baptize you anytime because this matters. This matters. And it's that moment where identity really comes together for a person because that identity is in Christ. This is my child. You are my child. And with you I am well pleased. That's just beautiful teaching. And it changes everything for us. It really does. But I need to give you a little warning as we talk about this. It's found also in the Gospel of Luke. So let's just turn back there. And I'll let the Bible warn you, not so much me. We just read from Luke chapter 3, we looked at the baptism of Jesus. We looked at the genealogy of Jesus and how he can be called the Son of God. And Now we're in Luke chapter 4. I don't know how many times I've read this passage and not seen what I'm about to share with you. I, I can't even tell you how many times I've read the Gospel of Luke, how many times I've read about the temptation of Jesus. I have no idea whatsoever. But I stumbled across this this past week. It's almost as if I stubbed my toe on it. It is that plain. Now let me show you what I'm talking about. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. Did you see it? Wondered forever what the real purpose of the temptation of Jesus was. 
It was obviously to test who he was. It was to put him through all kinds of different temptations so that we would have a high priest that knew everything that we deal with. There's no question about that. The book of Hebrews lays it out. But on a a much deeper level, do you really know what the temptation of Jesus was about? It was to test his identity in God. And it's as plain as the nose on your face. Now look at this back in chapter 3. After Jesus was baptized... This is verse 22. He came out of the water, heaven opened, and this voice was heard. You are my son with whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now go to chapter 4, verse 3. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. It was a test of Jesus' identity. It is as if, and this is my paraphrase, Satan was saying to him, if you are the Son of God, if you really are the Son of God, then let's see what you got. My friends, here's what you have to know. When you step out of the waters of baptism and you hear the voice of God declare that you are his child, his son or daughter, you need to expect the exact same thing. You will be tested in your identity in Christ. It will come, and you need to be prepared for it. You need to be ready for it. Have you ever noticed people that have come into the church and maybe you were here when they were baptized, they gave their life to Christ, and then six months later you started asking this question, well, where are those folks? It may very well be that they weren't prepared for this. They weren't prepared for their identity in Jesus to be tested the way it is. They didn't see it coming and it was too much for them to handle. So they, they walked away from that identity and went back into the, the old way of identifying themselves. They went back into their old life, and how sad is that? It's tragic, really. So you have to be aware of this. There's some good teaching that says that Jesus had to have two things in order to battle this, and those same two things are what we need. He needed subsequent confirmation from God, and he needed ongoing affirmation of his commitment to God. You need the exact same things if you're going to remain with Christ. You need subsequent confirmation from God, and you need ongoing affirmation on your relationship with God. Now, the subsequent confirmation, that's that's God's part. He's going to take care of that. And you saw how it worked. When Jesus was moving into his ministry and he needed the confirmation from God, God gave him the confirmation. Same thing works for you. When you are moving into the purpose for which you were created, God will confirm that within you. When you are moving into the place that God wants you to be, you expect that God will validate that. And then when Jesus needed him the most, God was there to confirm the relationship. He had subsequent confirmation. You saw it in John chapter 12 when Jesus said, my my soul is troubled. I am bothered right now and I don't know what to do about it because I don't want to die on the cross, but I need to die on the cross. Is this really what I am supposed to do? Yes, it is. He arrived at that conclusion very quickly, but then God sent the subsequent confirmation to him to say, I've already been glorified by you and I will be again. You're doing the right thing. I'm just curious. How many of you have ever needed that type of thing from the Lord? That type of confirmation? I have. How many of you can say at the the depths of your heart that you have needed things from God? I have needed things from God. And here's what I want you to hear, church. God has never let me down. Never. 
Now, when I'm talking about needing things from God, I am not talking about, Lord, I could sure use a million dollars. Or, God, I, a new truck would really be a good thing for me, or I need a boat, or I need a new house, or I need anything like that. That's not what I'm talking about. That is surface stuff. That is shallow stuff. I'm talking about really needing something from God. There have been times in my life where I've been discouraged, and I've just told God about it. Lord, I am discouraged, and I need encouragement. And God has come through. There have been other times that I have found myself without any knowledge of what to say in certain situations. Some of you are saying, really? You found yourself without words? That's hard to imagine. I I have. And and I've had to say to God, Lord, I, I don't know what to say. I need your help. Here's a little secret for you. That happens about every week. Lord, I don't know what to say. I I need your help. I need your words. There have been other times when I have found myself at a crossroads not knowing what to do, and I've been able to go back to God and say, God, I'm totally confused. I have no idea what to do. And I need your help with some direction. And God has never let me down. Ever. Ever. And I say that with all boldness. Because that's the subsequent confirmation that God gives to his children. And I can tell you that when I walked out of the waters of baptism in 1978, I could hear God saying, not audibly, but in my soul, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. And God has never let me down. And a number of you have the exact same testimony. Because listen, two and three follow one. When you are obedient to God, you can expect that God will be faithful to you. That's the way it works. Two and three always follow one. So put all that together and look at what can happen. Not only, though, did Jesus need subsequent confirmation, he needed ongoing affirmation from himself to God. And so do you. And so do I. This isn't something that we just say, once and then expect that it carries through forever. It's an ongoing affirmation of faithfulness. I'll show you what it looks like. Let's go back to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 23, verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. That's one of the most powerful, life-changing prayers in all of the New Testament. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That is ongoing affirmation right to the very end. Jesus was hanging on the cross. It was within his power, though not in his providence, to have a legion of angels come lift him off the cross. He could have stopped everything that was happening, and he didn't. The ongoing affirmation was this, Lord, I know I am in your will, and I will remain there all the way through to the end. And then he breathed his last. Folks, that type of affirmation in our walk with Christ is necessary. It is necessary. He will extend to you the subsequent confirmation that you need so that you know that you're within his will, but you return it by giving him the ongoing affirmation that I will remain faithful all the way to the end. Now, obviously, we can look at this and say, we're not Jesus and we're not hanging on a cross and we're not asked to die for him. Well, pick up a newspaper, turn on the internet right now, and you look at the Christians in northern Syria 
and northern Iraq that are being asked to die for their faith today. They have to have this type of affirmation. It has to be there for them. Otherwise, it'd be so easy to just say whatever it is the Muslims wanted them to say and and move on with their life, but they're not doing that. They're saying the exact same thing Jesus was. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And they're breathing their last. Their heads are being lopped off. So it's happening in our world right now in the year 2015. That's happening. But here in the United States of America, we don't necessarily have people that are struggling and suffering in their faith all the way to the point of death. But we have people that are suffering and struggling in their faith when they would oftentimes choose death over some of the struggles that they're dealing with. And this type of affirmation helps in every one of those struggles. Let me show you what that might look like. Maybe you're working for somebody right now that is not a Christian and has no use for the things of God, nor do they have a moral compass that allows them to honor God or even makes it easy for you to honor God. So they come to you and they ask you to do some things that you know are wrong. You know they're illegal. You know that they're immoral. And you decide that you're going to have to go and confront this. Not only are you not going to participate in it, but you're going to go and confront it. But you are fully aware of the fact that it may cost you your job. Well, the right prayer is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And if you breathe your last in that job, you breathe it with great faith, knowing that God is taking care of you. You see how this works? That's ongoing affirmation. Lord, I will honor you no matter what. There are other situations and scenarios that are even more difficult. Ask any one of the parents sitting in this room that have had to release their children into difficult, sinful situations And those parents have said, I will not bless this. I will not condone what you're doing because what you're doing is an abomination to God. What they're really saying is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is so hard. And I may breathe my last with my son or my daughter. And I may never have relationship with them again, but I will not compromise my relationship with you that I might have relationship with their bad sinful choices. And they breathe the last. And it goes on and on and on. You see, that type of affirmation is necessary. God will give you the confirmation that you need, but if you really want to solidify that, it requires you returning the affirmation that is necessary here. And you may very well breathe your last with it. But here's the thing. In God's kingdom, that isn't bad. Because even though Friday is upon you and it looks like the sun is going down on the week and you're going to breathe your last, this is stolen from another preacher. This is pretty good. Tony Campolo said this, Sunday is always coming. Friday is here and it's bad, but Sunday is always coming. And there is always hope in Christ. And when you breathe your last in whatever scenario it is, but you have affirmed your relationship with God, you trust that God is ready to bless you eternally on the other side of that. Man, that's good news when we find that type of identity in Christ. That is amazing news when we find that type of identity in Christ. And what matters to us are the voices that we hear in our accumulation of identity. What matters to us is who we're really going to listen to. Are we going to listen to the psychologist and the psychiatrist that tell us only to look within ourselves and whatever you discover is what it is? Are we going to listen to the voices around us, those outside voices that say whatever it is they want to say? Are we going to measure ourselves only by our achievements or are we going to listen upward and listen to what God has to say? That's true identity. Boy, it changes everything. 
I want to show you four things out of Scripture about identity. I'm going to do it in about two minutes. Four passages of Scripture as we go through this. If you map your Bible, this is a great thing to map because you may have to go back over and over and over again and remind yourself who you are in Jesus Christ. But I'm going to show you what biblical identity looks like right from the Bible. So if you're mapping your Bible, here's the way it works. Go to the front cover and write identity in Christ. Identity in Christ. And under it, you will write down these verses. But the first one is the one that really matters. We're going to go to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Listen to what Paul writes. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You were created by God. You are his workmanship. And you were created with a purpose in mind. You were created for a reason. It isn't just ambiguous. You were created for a reason. Now, if you're mapping your Bible, right next to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, write this down. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 2. Now, here's the way Bible mapping works. If you get to the first place and you write the second place in, you can start following a map all the way through your Bible. It's a great tool. Isaiah 44, verse 2 builds on what the Apostle Paul was just saying in Ephesians 2. Listen to what he writes. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. There are a number of people, and I am one of them, because I believe the Bible says this, and here it is right in front of us, so hopefully you believe it as well. You were formed in the womb. God knew you when you were conceived, which, by the way, answers a huge question that apparently Planned Parenthood cannot get their head around. Life begins in the womb. It begins at conception. And taking that life is destroying a life. That's all that is. Now, I'm just going to leave that because I don't want to make a political statement right now. I'm just telling you, there it is. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 2. There are even some people right out of Scripture, that would tell you that life begins before the womb. This is pretty good. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. Now that's true for Jeremiah, and that is true for every one of us. I like the way Max Lucado talks about this verse of Scripture. He says, before there were moments, or in the moments before there were moments... The Creator planned you. In the moments before there were moments, the Creator planned you for a purpose. And He planned you all the way down to the very details of who you are. I believe that because of this passage from Exodus chapter 4. If you're mapping your Bible next to Jeremiah chapter 1, write Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. The Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Do you realize that the exact design of your body came from God? The exact design of your soul came from God? The exact design of your personality came from God down to the very last detail? Does your mouth curve up at the the ends? Does it curve down by nature? That was designed by God. Do your eyes turn up? Do they turn down? Are they big? Are they small? Whatever they look like, it was designed by God. 
For a few of us, we understand what it means to have God's hand laid on us in such holiness that it becomes evident to everybody else. Are you bald? It's just because of God's design. Kidding. Just kidding. Maybe the rest of you will lose your hair at some point. It's still, that's, that's God's design down to the very last detail. And if we can believe that, can't we believe that our identity in Him is designed as well? And when we discover it, it's life-changing. Absolutely life-changing. And it changes eternity for us as well as our life on this earth. Discover it. And if you don't know how and you're not sure where to begin, then let me just take you back to what the Bible says. Why don't you start in the baptistry? Why don't you start right there and then watch what happens afterwards? Because remember, two and three follow one. So if you want to hear God affirming your purpose in life, then you affirm your commitment to Him. That's what happens in the baptistry. If you want God to be there when you need Him the most, then you start it out in the baptistry. Watch what happens from that point forward. It's pretty miraculous and spectacular. And it is God's design in identity. Why don't you stand and pray with us? Father in heaven, I will, I will always be amazed. That's my promise to you. I will always be amazed at the things that we can learn from Scripture and from your example. Father, I've been doing this for a long time. I've been studying the Bible a long time, and, and there is something new seemingly every time I open my Bible. Thank you for that. And Father, I'm even grateful for those times where the familiar becomes unfamiliar so that it stretches me. Thank you for that. Today, Lord, I am grateful that our identity is really designed, created, and placed within us by you. When we discover it, Father, it's, uh, well, it's just unbelievable. So I pray that you'll help us do that. I know the significance of baptism. Lord, I'm praying that that was preached this morning. I'm praying that those that have been waiting, and holding off, and making excuses for why they shouldn't do it will change that around. And I pray that that will happen quickly. Lord, would you put us all in a position to respond to this invitation in ways that we need to, whether that's through ongoing affirmation all the way to our last breath, or whether that's in declaration of our need for confirmation from you. Whatever it is, Father, I pray that you'll, you'll respond to us as we respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen.